Father, I thank you so much for your presence. You have said wherever two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. And so I say thank you that you're present with us, those in this room, those who are watching online. Uh, you're present with us. You, you've said to us as your children that you will never leave us, you'll never forsake us. The psalmist talked about where could we flee from your presence? Anywhere we go, you are there. So teach us always to be aware of your presence with us. And so, Father, during this hour, I pray that we would focus on you and listen to you, your Holy Spirit, as he speaks to us uh, through your word. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm sure that you have heard the statement that blood is thicker than water. And when somebody says that, what they're really saying is that family ties are really important, that there's nothing uh, closer than a family, that we're to support one another. Your family members have your back. And I, my prayer is that every one of us have a family like that, where you're tight, where you're, you're together, where uh, you're encouraging one another. Unfortunately, you hear from time to time of families that really are at war with one another, where uh, there's a lot of revenge, there's a lot of bitterness, there's a lot of hatred, there's a lot of anger between family members. And uh, uh, we call those dysfunctional families, families that just are, are at each other's throats. And that's unfortunate. Well, in the book of Genesis, we read of a dysfunctional family that had two sons that were definitely at war with one another. In fact, that struggle of brother against brother even began before they were born. Uh, look with me. Uh, well, you can look on just or listen. I'm going to read from Genesis 25. That's not where we're studying today, but it's setting the background to this. So Genesis 25 and verse 21, listen to this. It says that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means supplanter. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. And perhaps you remember the, the rest of the story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers that from the very beginning were at odds with one another. <clears throat> and you know how Jacob, the younger brother, and younger by just a, a few minutes because they were fraternal twins, um, how at some point in time he stole from uh, Esau both the blessing and the birthright that naturally should have fallen to the older, older son. And because of that, Esau threatened to kill Jacob. And so Jacob fled for his life 
from his, his home there in Canaan and went back to the ancestral home back in Mesopotamia. And he stayed there for over 20 years. Finally, he came back to Canaan and he came back with a lot of fear and a lot of trembling at, at the, the thought of, of meeting his brother Esau. And unfortunately, this hostility that began during the, the, their lifetime would continue and it would be passed down from generation to generation, from generation to come. Uh, Jacob's descendants became the children of Israel. Jacob, of course, had his name changed by God and he became Israel. And so his descendants were the children of Israel. Esau, on the other hand, his descendants became the nation of Edom. And the nation, uh, the descendants of Esau, the nation of Eden, they settled in the region south of the Dead Sea, in the land of promise. That geographical location, unfortunately, just added to the, the turmoil between these two peoples, these two nations. For when Israel left Egypt after being delivered by God miraculously and being delivered from slavery, as they made their way to the land of promise, their route would have led them through the land of Edom. And so they sent petitions saying, hey, let us pass through your country. We'll stay on the king's highway. We won't go to the left. We won't go to the right. We won't use your water. We won't use your grazing. We're just going to go on the highway right through. Edom said no. And in fact, marshaled forces to threaten Israel. And so Israel had to go around uh, the land of Edom to get uh, to to the promised land. And so this animosity between these two nations would brew for another almost 10 centuries Today, we're coming to the minor prophet of Obadiah. The book of Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's only 21 verses long. The whole book, this this short book, the whole of it is a a prophetic announcement of God's judgment on the land of Eden, on on the, the, the nation of Edom. Now, why? why? Why would an entire book be given to condemning Edom when they aren't even God's chosen people? Oh, they shouldn't even be in, you know, in consideration here. Well, to understand why the need for this book of condemnation of the nation of Edom, uh, let's set the historical context to the book. Judah, which is the southern kingdom, we've been probably the last number of weeks we've been dealing with minor prophets that prophesied mostly in the northern kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah has failed to heed the warning from God and has continued to be unfaithful to God. And and God has sent to them warnings through people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Joel, these prophets saying, turn from your wicked ways or God's going to bring judgment. They continue to be unfaithful to God. And finally, God brought judgment on them. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon brought his armies in 586, 587 B.C. and laid siege to the land. They captured the land. They laid siege to Jerusalem and ended up totally destroying the city of Jerusalem and left it in ruins. And here's where the indictment against Edom begins. Because 
their sin, and, and we could find it, the, the sin of Edom can be found in a psalm that was written during the exile period. After the fall of Jerusalem, the people are carted off to Babylon, and somebody there writes a psalm, and in that psalm we find the sin of Edom. Look at in your notes there at Psalm 137 and verse 7. This particular psalmist said this, O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. You see, at one point during these last days of the nation of Judah, Edom had been an ally of Judah. They had had a peace treaty with Judah, and they were allies. Uh, That was probably in about 594 B.C. That was during the reign of King Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king on the throne of Judah. But sometime between uh, 594 and the fall of Jerusalem in 587-86 B.C., Edom betrayed the, uh, the alliance that they had with Judah. They turned against their kinsmen. And they applauded the destruction. And you know what? They perhaps even participated in the destruction. The psalmist says, you know, they they shouted, burn it down, tear it down, you know, all that. But they probably participated in the destruction as well. And how do we know that? Well, in one of the uh, Jewish apocryphal writings, now, you know that the apocrypha are some Jewish writings from that period of time that we don't have in our Old Testament. They don't fit the criteria of of being inspired by God, of being really authoritative, God's word to us. And yet many of them are good historical references of what's going on in the day and time. Well, in one of those apocryphal books, the book of 1 Esdras, it talks about the rebuilding of the temple after the the, uh, Jewish people have returned from exile. And they're going to rebuild the temple. And it, and it talks about, here's the words. It says, quote, The temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was laid waste by the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans is just another name for Babylon. And so it's obvious here that the Edomites were a part of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so Edom is a bitter enemy against Judah. And and what we're going to see if you look through the Old Testament that Obadiah isn't the only Old Testament prophet who preaches against Edom. I mean, uh, Isaiah had judgment against Edom. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Malachi, all of those join in denouncing the nation of Edom. So let's begin looking in Obadiah in chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 1 to start with. Good place to start. Start with the first, okay? This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. Now, we don't know anything about Obadiah. He doesn't tell us where he's from. He doesn't tell us where, he's, where he lives. He doesn't tell us where his father, who his father was. He tells us nothing about himself. I mean, most of the prophets, as you look through the Old Testament, one of the things you're going to see is that, you know, they'll say, I'm from this town, uh, this is my hometown, and this is my father's name. And these are the kings that, that were on the throne when I was engaged in my prophetic ministry. Oh, but that doesn't tell us anything at all. Uh, it doesn't tell us 
what king he was under when he was engaged in his prophetic ministry. That might perhaps be because Obadiah, his prophecy is coming, think about it, at a time when there was no king over Judah because Judah didn't exist anymore. And so therefore he's a man without a country, you might say, in many ways. And, and because of the content in this book, and really the context also of the book, obviously Obadiah is writing sometime after 586 B.C. because Jerusalem is gone. But he's probably writing sometime before 500 B.C. because that's when Edom is destroyed. So this book is written sometime between 586 and 500 B.C. And so these 21 verses are containing a revelation from God concerning God's attitude toward Edom for their complicity in the destruction of Judah and, and Jerusalem. And, and this revelation of judgment is, is going to be couched in what we call four oracles. Oracle is simply a judgment pronouncement. So let's look at those oracles. Oracle number one, chap, uh, verses one through four, contains a pledge. Uh, the, the book begins with a pledge by God to bring Edom down. And you know what? That word down is significant because Edom needed to be brought down a notch because they had this exalted attitude about themselves. They needed to be brought down. So look at Obadiah chapter 1, beginning there again at verse 1. This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations um, to say, get ready, everyone. Let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. The dominant tone here in the, in the book of Obadiah is that of outrage. Here is Obadiah, and he's speaking against Edom. He's, he's outraged at their behavior. And he's, he's saying it for the benefit of the Jewish people, letting them know that God has not forgotten them, that, that God has not deserted them, and that he is very much aware of the way that their kinsmen, the Edomites, treated them in, that, in the day of their, of their calamity. So Obadiah begins here with a call to battle. It's, it's a call that's issued to all the nations to come and be God's instrument of judgment against the Edomites. And the reason for the coming uh, judgment listed here is Edom's pride. Look again at verse 3. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. So God is saying through the, through the prophet that Edom, who thinks they're really significant, they're destined to become insignificant. Um, you know, that, that kind of stands in sharp contrast to their high opinion of themselves. God is saying, you're going to be despised by the nations. 
See, Edom's pride was, uh, problem was their pride. <clears throat> they pictured themselves as self-sufficient. Did you see that language here? They, they felt secure in their mountain fortresses, that, you know, out of sight, out of reach, um, or so they thought. But what Edom failed to realize is that God is all-knowing, that God is all-powerful, and he hasn't forgotten them. They're not hiding from him. He's coming to bring judgment on them. See, this is a nation that thought that no one could capture them, but God has vowed to bring them down. And, and did you notice the, the boast there in verse 3? Who can ever reach us way up here? Well, that's going to be answered by a very simple statement. God can. God can reach you. Uh, one writer said this, Drunk on pride and deceived by a false sense of security, Edom will tumble from its heights and become an object of derision among the nations. Folks, this serves as a warning to us. You know, we need to always watch out for an attitude of pride. Pride can be very, very damaging to us. Remember, Scripture says that God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Those who recognize God for who He is and recognize us for who we really are, that we are not God, but He is. So God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Oracle number 2 then begins in verse 5, verses 5 through 10, and it contains a promise. And it's God's promise, a promise to destroy the nation of Edom. <clears throat> so Obadiah verses 5 through 7 says this, If thieves came at night and robbed you, and then a parenthetical statement, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor. But your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help, you, uh, they will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you and you won't even know about it. Now, <clears throat> notice here the extent of Edom's destruction. Did you... Did you catch the, the word picture here? It's saying that burglars will come. And when they're through, there'll be some things that are left. When grape harvesters go through the, grape, uh, through the vineyards harvesting grapes, they always leave some of the grapes behind. But for those of you living in Edom, there will not be anything left behind. You see the contrast there? Burglars and, and vine dressers will leave something behind but your enemies will leave nothing behind. You'll be completely ransacked and destroyed. In other words, Edom is going to be stripped clean, and, and God's judgment will come from invading armies that will take everything. All, all this nation's hidden treasures will be found and, and will be, will be uh, pillaged. You see, Edom's pride... They thought, their, their pride was in their ability to hide securely in their mountain fortress. But they're not secure from the judgment of God. That note of pride is going to prove to be futile. So the ransacking that's going to come on the nation of Israel is going to come at the hands of their allies. 
those that they once thought were their allies. <clears throat> Chief among those is going to be Babylon. They helped Babylon in the, in the destruction of Jerusalem. But watch out. Their ally is going to turn on them. So look at in verse 7. It says, you know, in verse 3 it says, God says, you've been deceived by your pride. Here in verse 7 it says, you're going to be deceived now by your allies who have turned against you. Uh, think about it. Uh, Edom's loss of material wealth is nothing compared to the loss of their allies that have turned against them. So not only will all their possessions and treasures be taken away, but it also talks about that every single person will either be destroyed or will be deported. Beginning in verse 8, <clears throat> At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Timon. Timon was one of the leading cities of Edom that was in the northern part of the country. Uh, not, the mightiest warriors of Timon will be terrified and everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence you did to your close relatives, Israel, relatives in Israel. You will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. Evidence from archaeology and from Bible history really point to a time in the 6th century B.C. for the fulfillment of Obadiah's prophecy of Edom's destruction. Uh, there in verse 7, he says that Edom will be chased out of their land. Or, and uh, those words began to be fulfilled again by their ally, the Babylonians. When King uh, Nabonidus came against Edom sometime between 555 and 532 B.C. And by the end of the 5th century B.C., uh, the destruction of Edom was complete and they were totally gone from the land and their land was now inhabited by the Nabataean Arabs. There wasn't a trace of Edom left in the land. Oracle number three then is a pronouncement and uh, that goes from verse 11 through 14. <clears throat> it says this, when they were invaded, and he's talking about when Jerusalem, when the Jewish people were invaded, when that country was invaded, when they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they suffered such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing them when they tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. Folks, this is the heart <coughs> here of the book of Obadiah. Uh, the treatment of Edom toward the Jewish people really stands in sharp contrast, folks, to the way that you and I ought to relate to people that we might consider our enemies or our adversaries. Uh, remember, these are blood relatives here. Yeah, they're kind of distant relatives now, centuries later, but they're still kin. 
And really, until the invasion of Jerusalem by Babylon, Edom was an ally of Judah. That is, they had a peace treaty. They had an agreement that they would, would uh, go to fight with one another against any kind of invasion that would happen. But Edom broke that. They turned coat. They betrayed. They, they did an about face. And so look again at these indictments that God delivers through Obadiah. He says, you should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to a distant land. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. Four, you should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. Five, you should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. So here is Edom. The people are running out of Jerusalem trying to escape from the Babylonian army that's coming and they're standing at the crossroads and they're killing some and the rest they're capturing. And you know what they do? They sell them into slavery to the the surrounding nations. This is the sin of Edom. Now, these indictments about the way Edom treated their enemy of Judah are in a negative light here, but they really, in many ways, they serve as some kind of great guidelines for us so that we can learn how do you relate to people that maybe are considered your enemies. I mean, folks, all of us during our lives are going to have people who are going to be our adversaries, that in some way or another, they're going to we're going to consider them to be our enemies. You know, they want the worst to happen to us. And unfortunately, uh, we probably want the worst to happen to them. I mean, that's kind of the way this goes. And when something bad happens, what do we typically do? Man, we gloat, don't we? We rejoice. Yeah, they deserve that. Aren't you glad that happened to them? So forth. Well, Obadiah says, don't gloat. Don't rejoice. Because when we do that, You know what we're doing? We are reflecting an attitude of pride and arrogance. Because what you've basically said is, I am superior to them, and I'm so glad this happened to them. Hey, look at me. They're down, and that makes me up. We need to stay away from that kind of attitude of superiority, because the Bible is very plain. That kind of attitude is dangerous. Because just one slip up, and you'll be at the bottom with them. The writer of Proverbs says that uh, destruction goes before pride, or pride goes before destruction, excuse me, and haughtiness before a fall. You and I need to be aware of that. Notice also <clears throat> that Obadiah, Obadiah challenged Edom because they used Judah's calamity for their own advantage. That's another way that sometimes we get at our enemies. We use their troubles to promote ourselves and our own self-interest. You know, if I can profit off your woes, man, I'm going to do it, right? That's the way the world approaches uh, the downfall of our enemies. 
but that's not what God wants for us. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. Jesus said, you've heard the law that says, love your enemies, uh, love your neighbors, excuse me, and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. See, Jesus says instead of payback or gloating or taking advantage, we need to love our enemies. When your enemy is down, Jesus says, reach down and pick them up. Help them get back on track. See, love... If we're to love our enemies, that means putting the needs of our enemies even ahead of our own. Uh, We're to pray for them. That's what Jesus says. Pray daily for them. Pray God's blessings on them. That's how Jesus puts that. And, And notice here in Matthew 5 and verse 45, Jesus points out that God blesses both the good and the evil person. Uh, And he does this with a design to draw all people to himself, that they might trust him, that they might love him. And folks, we're called to do the very same thing. We're called to bless those who curse us. Uh, we're, <clears throat> we're to show God's love. We're to pray for God's blessings on them so that they might come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, just like you and I know Jesus Christ as Savior. We're to do that for everybody, regardless of whether they're our friends or whether they're our enemies. See, what God desires from us in the way in which we relate to those who are at odds with us is that we don't follow the ways of the world. You look at the world around us, and it's dog-eat-dog kind of a world where when you've got somebody who's your adversary, you're out to get him any way you can. If he's your enemy, you rejoice when he's down. But that's not how we're to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Instead, we're called to be different than the culture around us. Uh, The Apostle Paul elaborated on on the teachings of Jesus even more in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're to treat your enemies in an honorable way? even if they're treating you dishonorably. He goes on in verse 18. Do all you can to live at peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. See, what Paul is saying is simply this. Don't stoop to become like your enemies. Don't stoop to become like your enemies. Instead, do whatever it takes to be at peace with everyone, including those who are hostile toward you. 
you know, some people will advise you, well, you just need to avoid your enemies. You need to ignore your enemies. That's not what God's Word says. God's Word advises different. We're to work at living peacefully with everyone. And, and there's a second thought here that Paul gives to us, that we're to put the entire situation in our relationship with those that are at odds with us. <clears throat> we're to put that into God's hands because God can change hearts. He can change that person's attitude toward you. And so we need to pray and we need to trust God to be at work in that situation. Never seek revenge. Instead, pay back good for the evil that they give you. In other words, we're not to try to pay them back what they give to us. We're to be above that. Don't, don't ever lower yourself to their level at all. And then the last words of Paul, answer ill treatment with kindness and mercy. We're to conquer evil by doing good, showing mercy. Edom didn't do any of these things, okay? And because of that, God's judgment is coming on them. And so that's spelled out in the last oracle of this book of, of Obadiah, oracle number four, which is a prophecy, verses 15 through 21. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you, have done, as you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own head. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment that I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. <clears throat> These two verses that begin this, this fourth oracle really point out that Edom is going to soon regret their behavior toward Judah. Uh, they needed to realize that the day of the Lord, remember we've said the day of the Lord is a day of God's judgment. It's a cataclysmic event when, when God will reign supreme as the judge of all of those who sin. Uh, the day of the Lord is fast approaching. Uh, here in Obadiah, the day of the Lord is imminent. That's the language that's used here. And, and while that day of the Lord is going to be judgment, it's also good news for Judah because Judah would see that their situation is going to be reversed. They had been punished. They were in exile. But all of that is going to come to, to an end when the day of the Lord appears. The day of the Lord would be a day of judgment of all the nations. That's what Obadiah is saying here. And, and catch this, the punishment of Edom would fit their crime. Did you notice the words, as you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you? And now Israel here, let me clear this stuff up, okay, because he gets really muddled here. Israel in this case is another name for Judah. Now, just remember, um, Jacob... His name was changed by God to Israel. And so the children of Israel are those who come out of Egypt, enter the promised land. Uh, and during the period of the judges, the period of King Saul, King David, King Solomon, all of those, that Jewish nation was called Israel. But then came the divided kingdom when the ten northern tribes seceded from the southern uh, tribes, started their own kingdom. And so during that period of time, the northern tribe is called Israel. And the southern 
two tribes of Benjamin and Judah take on the name of the predominant tribe, and that is Judah. So during that period of the divided kingdom, Israel refers to the north, Judah refers to the south. But now the northern kingdom is gone. And so now the prophets begin, and from this point on, the name Israel can refer to the southern kingdom. It can be called the children of Israel. It can be called the sons of Esau, I mean sons of of, uh, Jacob. Uh, So Israel and Judah, they're the same nation at this point, okay? Does that... Does that muddle it up even worse, or does that kind of clear it up here, okay? So now when we're talking about Israel, we're really talking about Judah, the whole, the whole Jewish people, okay, here. So as you look at the judgment of God um, on Edom that's described here in verse 16, what we're going to see is that what Edom had done to Judah would really form a mirror through which they could see exactly what God is going to do to them. Um, and I think there's a truth that we need to zero in on there, uh, zero in on right there. That divine retribution waits for those who commit iniquity. And, and their judgment will match their deeds. Their judgment will match their deeds. Folks, what I want you to know is there's not going to be any under punishment. God's not going to say, well, I should have punished them more. There's not going to be under punishment. But there's also not going to be any over-punishment. God's not going to punish people more than they deserve. In other words, people are going to get exactly what they deserve apart from the mercy and the grace of God that is given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So verse 16 here really contains a kind of an interesting word picture. It pictures Edom as as a staggeringly, uh, staggering drunkenly from their celebration over the fall of Judah. But now they're going to stagger because they have been drinking of the wine of God's cup of judgment. Then next we're going to see a statement in these next verses of the uh, a day of deliverance for Judah. Verse 17 and 18. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be like a raging fire in Edom, a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, think back to what we've just reported here. You know, when, when the Jewish people were attempting to flee Jerusalem uh, and, and the Babylonian army that was invading and all that, Edom had waited for them and had killed them at the crossroad, had, had taken them captive and sold them into slavery and so forth. Well, now things are going to be reversed. And a part of that reversal is that Jerusalem, instead of being a place from which to flee, soon is going to become a place to come back as a refuge. As a refuge. That place that had been a place of judgment, that had happened there on on God's holy mountain, Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem, would now become the very place where deliverance would occur. It's no longer going to be a place of destruction. It will be a place of deliverance. 
And if you remember, <clears throat> I, I mentioned a number of weeks ago that one of the weapons of ancient warfare was that of fire. When you were in a siege, you know, if you could lay, uh, if you could set fire to part of the city, that was a weapon that you could use in, in the battle at the siege of city. Well, God in the Old Testament often used fire also as a means of divine punishment. So look in verse 18. It says the Jewish people would serve as God's fire and the descendants of Joseph. Now, some of your translations are going to say the descendants of Jacob there, okay? Those descendants would serve as God's torch. Edom, and again, some of your translations are going to say, they're going to call it the house of Esau. That's, that's the nation of Edom. Edom would be like stubble of a dry hayfield. They would quickly be overwhelmed by the fire of God's judgment. And notice how God affirms the truth of this judgment, that it really is true, that it really is coming. He says, I, the Lord, have spoken. That's a firm attestation that these words are going to come true. What I, what I think God wants us to see here is that, yes, <clears throat> Judah was punished for their unfaithfulness to him. Um, God doesn't wink at sin, okay? He doesn't overlook our unbelief. He doesn't overlook our unfaithfulness. At the same time, however, God will provide a way of escape, a way of restoration for those who will hear and who will turn to him and, and heed his word. See, this whole section is about the coming day of the Lord. And Edom's destruction and Judah's deliverance are really two sides of the same coin. They're matching sides of the, of the, the whole picture of that coming day. So verse 19 and 21, as we close the book out, really picture a day of restoration for the people of God. Uh, in these verses, we see Judah, and they're going to be living in an expanded uh, area, expanded territory. They're going to be living under the rule of the Lord God. So verse 19, then my people living in the Negev, that means the southern part of the land of promise, then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Benjamin and Samaria, uh, excuse me, of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle in the towns of the Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom. And the Lord himself will be king. <clears throat> you know, as we read these verses that describe the expansion of the territory of Israel uh, that's going to be, you know, occupied by this, this restored Jewish nation. One of the things that, that I think we quickly realize is that these parts that are being occupied in the Negev, the Philistine area, the, you know, those are the same areas that were a part of the territory that was ruled over by David and by Solomon. In other words, the restoration to the land is not going to be partial, but it's going to be complete. That nation, that, that country will be the same as it was when David and Solomon were on the throne of that nation. 
Uh, they're going to, and in verse 19 it says, the Jewish people will occupy the mountains of Edom. Did you catch that? The Jewish people are going to be in the area where Edom once was. And then verse 21, look, this is even better. The Lord himself will occupy the mountains of Jerusalem. And there he's going to rule as king eternal. And the real significance of that very last sentence in this book is that the day of the Lord will be marked as a day when all of God's enemies are defeated, when God's people are restored to his kingdom, and with the establishment of the universal rule and reign of, of God Almighty. See, the, the people of God may suffer temporarily because of their sinfulness. And they may be defeated because of that sinfulness. But God is going to intervene to rescue them, to, to judge their enemies, and to establish his kingdom. And that very last sentence, and the Lord himself will be king, will usher in once again in Israel the theocracy, the rule and reign of God alone as king over the nation. Remember back in Samuel's day, the nation rejected God, and that was the end of the theocracy and the beginning of the monarchy? Once again, the nation is going to return to the theocracy. God will reign supreme, not just over that nation, but over all the earth. Man, what a tremendous picture this is. In the end, folks, God wins, right? And, and God reigns, and, and God draws all his people into the universal kingdom where there's going to be no more destruction. There's not going to be any more betrayal, no more enemies, no more wickedness, no more illness, no more death. It's going to be, my folks, the day of the Lord. And what a glorious day that will be. Next week, we're going to be looking at Joel, and we're going to learn so much more about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament sense of the word. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we do rejoice in that coming day when you once again will reign as Lord Supreme of all the earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We look forward to that day. We so long for you to rule and to reign. We recognize that until that time, this world is going to be filled with calamity. It's going to be filled with turmoil. It's going to be filled with suffering and anguish. We recognize that all of that comes about because we are such sinners. We brought so much of the world's calamity upon ourselves because we are sinful through and through. But I am so thankful that even at the very beginning of time, you set in motion a plan for your son to come into this world, to die for our sins, to provide a way that we might become your children, the children of the living God, and that one day we could be in your presence for all of eternity, enjoying your rule and your reign. We love you, Lord. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.